We leave behind our everyday concerns, the world of Kronos. We set aside our watches and turn off our phones. We don't count this time as ordinary, measured by the ticking of the clock. It's time for the Vinyl Crusade with your host, Mike Puskas, the man, the, the man, with the man. man. Thank you very much. Joyful possibility becomes reality. Welcome, welcome, welcome once again to another episode of the Vinyl Crusade with your host Mike Puskas from the Seven Sense team. And again, we always begin these particular episodes just checking in with the uh, the general 
feeling of people and how they're doing, how are we all handling the fact that we're not getting much sunlight, the fact that our immune system is getting somewhat decimated and the fact that we're feeling rather isolated and somewhat alone and somewhat estranged. And as a course of that, feeling somewhat reactionary to pretty much everything that's kind of going on at the moment. Well, we all are very much in the same boat. And I think that this is one of the reasons why when choosing the kind of quintessential records that defined our generation or generations before us or continue to purport their influence on even the millennial generation of today, this has been a great time to get into what is known as the flow of music and what music brings in a general sense and in a bigger kind of return to what gave us pleasure, what generated passion in our lives, what gave us a reason to get out of bed, get motivated and get in flow with the program. And I couldn't think of a better record when we're sort of stuck inside and we're all feeling a bit broody and we're all feeling a little bit sort of detached in a lot of ways than to take a strong detailed look at The Cure and their sophomore album 17 Seconds which pretty much followed up their debut Killing an Arab or what later became the Three Imaginary Boys which then later became the very very evocative Boys Don't Cry and the good thing about this is that I can actually talk quite a lot about my own experience with what was The Cure. The Cure, for me, was a walk on the wild side. It was a, a group that defined what it was like to be different, what it was like to challenge the norm, what it was like to know deep in our hearts, minds and souls, the power that the persuasive nature of music could create in our lives. And this is important to know because there is a certain amount of understanding our psyche, our soul journey, our deeper connection to the experiential and experimental realms that The Cure so perfectly wrapped up in a nice little ball and rolled out underneath us for us to enjoy and experience. We began with In Your House. In Your House for me with its sort of dulcet sort of languid tones has been a particular favourite of mine for a really, really long period of time and it spearheads a number of my Spotify playlists. And so I thought it was apt in getting an idea of where do you think this album may or may not be heading. But like everything else, before we dissect the track list and get into the flow 
of this week's episode of the Vinyl Crusade right here on Megazine Radio, we need to look a little bit into the background of this incredible band. Formed in 1976 by schoolmates Robert Smith, vocals and guitar, Michael Dempsey, bass, and Lawrence Lowell Tolhurst on drums, first as Easy Cure, the fledgling trio lived close enough to London, some 30 minutes due south, in the West Sussex town of Crawley, to experience more than just a few ripples of the punk rock tsunami about to hit. Let's set the tone. Before the Pistols came and took the subservient and subterranean and subversive elements of punk into the mainstream, we were blessed with groups like Susie and the Banshees, Toya Wilcox, The Cramps, The Damned, Bauhaus, Shriekback, even the Smiths had their place. But The Cure and The Banshees, and Robert Smith, of course, for those who didn't know, was an original guitarist for Susie before he was replaced and decided to go his own independent pathway and form what was then known as Easy Cure and later became The Cure. But in spite of its politically incorrect title, The Cure's 1978 single, Killing an Arab, based on Albert Cummins' The Outsider, saw the young band substituting punk's filth and fury for a far more subtle and hooky brand of angular guitar pop, as evidenced by 79's even more infectious singles, Boys Don't Cry, and jumping someone else's train, plus the first full-length proper Three Imaginary Boys. And yet, as the ensuing 17 seconds would soon reveal, The Cure were already transitioning away from post-punk to new wave and gothic rock, an evolution at least partly inspired by the recent UK tour with Susie and the Banshees during which Smith pulled double duty, so to speak, stepping in for the Banshees' departed guitarist, John McKay, each night on stage. i got to tell you, the listening to the Banshees in the morning and listening to The Cure in the, at night was a really, really powerful transitional state in my own life. And as I kind of ventured to guess a little bit about where my musical tastes and predominantly where my own sexuality might take me in the coming years, they were indicative of so much more that was yet to present itself. And it did become a go-to destination when I felt chastised, when I felt out of sync with my peer group when I felt like the world didn't understand me. And there's a beautiful story that I can bring, there's two really, really good stories, but the beautiful story that I can bring very much into a clear focus is that while The Cure were just beginning 
to kind of get their mojo happening with Boys Don't Cry. My first introduction really to Alien Sex Fiend and the Cramps and the Subhumans and Crass and Millions of Dead Cops and Rudimentary Peni, which I will probably end up doing an episode on. So all you really hardcore punkers out there, Rudimentary Peni really sort of set the tone for what was considered to be the ultimate perspective of subversive behaviour. I met a lovely girl in my early sort of early to mid-twenties, I would say, and she was very much part of the so-called goth punk crossover movement. And at this particular time, at the probably at the age of about 25, maybe 26, I was already delving into the idea of running an alternative club. And before I knew it, one thing led to another. I started doing some freelance journo, pro bono of course, certainly wasn't getting paid, at a young upcoming fanzine called The Bride Music Journal, and also found a few of my articles getting into Duke due to my relationship with editor Christy Eliza. My burgeoning career as a upcoming pop and rock manager was also starting to, to find form with one of my first groups, Young Dub, and I remember taking a bus to try and convince a middle-aged woman by the name of Susan Howarth in Coffs Harbour that I'd be a good option to take her on and help to guide her career to greater heights. And during that time, while all that was going on, I met a lovely girl by the name of Julie Fairbairn, who epitomised, if you like, the very, very sensual and sultry look of Susie Sue herself, sporting the same dark bob hair with the little blonde kind of skunk tuff, if you like, at the back and wearing all the most cutesy of goth-style clothing, black, of course, predominantly, and the very heavy-set, typical eyeshadow and eye makeup that went very much with the whole kind of goth movement. Me, on the other hand, was a punko, already experimenting with the idea of what it's like to have a couple of mohawks bald in the middle and spend what money I was able to garner out of the government through what we called the dole back then in an effort to pay for my expensive hairspray fetishes of which of course was the very basis of being able to keep my mohawks up and so Susie Sue and to some degree the, the lead singer if you like of GBH and maybe even early Billy Idol came together and found a way to sort of tolerate each other, one being a punko and one being a goth. And we came together as I launched a 
local Melbourne alternative club called Revelation 666, which was held every Thursday evening from about 8.30pm till just after midnight at the Tropicana Club, and that was down on Church Street in Richmond. Fond memories indeed, and very much the soundtrack at the time was laced predominantly with the cure. So I can say that there's a lot here that I can reflect on. And to understand what it means to reflect on something is really the basis on which we can hearken back to the good old days of what it meant to truly love a band. And I mean really, really love a band. Something that a lot of the people within my circle seem to be flipping through more and more each day, not being able to settle, if you like, on something worthy of a little bit more attention to detail. You're on Magazine Radio, The Vinyl Crusade, with your host, Mike Puskas. And speaking of a reflection, the album opens with a reflection. And when we come back after listening to uh, a fairly decent part of this track, we'll talk about the track list of 17 seconds. This is The Cure and Reflection. Reflection by The Cure of 17 Seconds, a really nice scene setter. The opening track, A Reflection with K 
keyboard sounding like a, a juice harp and fusing into a simple slow theme played by the guitar and the piano setting the entire atmosphere of this rather eclectic record. Dark but not heavy, almost like a piano piece by an English satay. A reflection engraves itself on the memory of the listener. A minimal opener preparing us softly for things to come. Play for Today has already all ingredients of a good upbeat cure song. A bass forming the bass, propelling lively guitars, some spacey, synthy, hypnotic drum beats, and Robert Smith's unique, somber, high pitch, but not whining vocal style. And it is so tuneful, so pop, and that's what makes it memorable. The Cure were the Beatles of Dark Wave. I prefer that term as opposed to goth rock because a lot of the people that I knew back in the goth rock days were pretty ordinary and quite lost in their own translation. But I find it sounding as fresh now as I did then and very much for me is a first highlight that will feature here on the Vinyl Crusade. Secrets is dominated by a simple bass line and is a very rhythmic affair. An impressionist track serving as a transition to the next piece. Now this was already the so-called humble beginnings of what would become emphatically known as the concept album. Songs that weaved and ducked and kind of wove together different elements that allowed it to create a fusion of different parts of the next song. So there's a little bit of thematic expression that's then reflected in more detail in the next song or tracks that were coming up on the record. In Your House is very heavy. Smith sounds extremely tired a hint to future ominous musical developments, like pretending to be deep and somewhat profound. This is the first Cure song, which, while has a lot of repetition, can also become boring. But many more were to come later on that echoed the same sentiment. The Cure didn't by any stretch set the world on fire for the most part. It's just that they were consistent and consistency is what the young teenagers of the early 70s needed to ground themselves so they knew where they were in any given minute. Until there was nothing else, Robert Smith could sound like a ridiculous parody of himself. But even in this particular song, there are bits which really save it, elevate it, and lift it to heights that are truly memorable. The end of the song is a release when there are only synths, meandering guitar, and the remnants of a somewhat disintegrating drum machine left. Now, following that, we have the two instrumentals. 
except for Smith's background radio voice, which is also very characteristic of the type of artists that like to remain very much in the background. But these two instrumentals following are rather weird. I love them though, because they're experimental, they're almost atonal, mounting the tension and leading directly to the very heart of this album. We arrive at the heart. The heartbeat of 17 seconds is without a doubt a forest. One of the best songs of all time, in my humble opinion, and I'm sure there are millions out there that would very much echo the same sentiment. Starting slowly with the theme repeated a couple of times by the acoustic guitar with brooding synth sounds and then suddenly accelerating to an irresistible beat when the drums and finally the bass truly kicks in. Nobody can stop this hypnotic trip into the night. Dark power, pure and simple. And can you honestly say that you may or may not have ever listened to the lyrics? I did before, but I've never really got the meaning. And now, as my consciousness has evolved, now as I understand why an artist becomes somewhat depressive and or brooding in an effort to express their art, it seems extremely clear now. They are about hopelessly falling in love, told from the point of view of the male of the species, of course. He's running after the girl without paying attention to the outside world. He only sees her or thinks he sees her and suddenly he realises that he is lost in the forest. And she isn't there. He has been chasing a phantom. He didn't fall in love with her, but instead with his picture of her. And now he's on his own, lost in the forest, running towards nothing. And he would do it again and again and again and again. This track is something that really sets a tone for what was to come from this incredible band. You're on Magazine Radio, the Vinyl Crusade with your host Mike Puskas. We're getting into 17 Seconds, the sophomore album and follow-up to Boys Don't Cry. And this is none other than a forest.
A Forest and The Cure from 17 Seconds. Right here on the Vinyl Crusade with your host, Mike Puskas. I hope you're enjoying this little trip down memory lane, going to the parties, listening to these groups, jumping up and down, hair everywhere, makeup running, pistas and newt, taking all manner of psychedelic drugs, and really, really enjoying life as we took the advice of Timothy Leary to turn on, tune in, and drop out. As for the album's most iconic enduring track, which we just heard, A Forest, Smith would tell Rolling Stone that I wanted to do something that was really atmospheric, and it has a fantastic sound. Chris Parry said, if you make this sound radio-friendly, you got a big hit on your hands, bro. Smith said, but this is how it sounds. It's the sound I've got in my head. It doesn't matter about whether or not it's radio-friendly. Smith was very true to his art. He didn't compromise, and he only ever really moved further and further afield as new members graced their presence within the ever-changing lineup of The Cure. Indeed, it was reaching an impressive number 31 in the UK charts when the absolute album and single charts were dotted with so many one-hit wonders, it boggles the imagination. Even the album's stark, nebulous, mysterious cover art contrasted sharply with the bright pastels of three imaginary boys. And as Smith explained to Rolling Stone, we did all the photos the day we finished recording at about eight o'clock in the morning. And I said to the bloke, could you do some pics that are kind of out of focus? And they're the ones we used because the ones in focus looked so hideous. Now, while all these creative decisions seemed to fly in the face of commercial common sense, 17 seconds went on to peak at this rather number 20 in the UK easily toppling its comparatively upbeat predecessor, which had stalled at a number 44, and paving the way for the Cure's relentless, almost stubborn evolution over increasingly successful subsequent albums, Faith, number 14, and Pornography, number 8. Now, I've got to say that if I was kind of trying to put together what you would call a quintessential list of marooned on a tropical island kind of bucket list of records, there are tracks on faith, there are tracks on pornography, there are tracks on Boys Don't Cry, and there are certainly tracks on 17 Seconds, which if you compiled into a, an amazing collection of eclectic songs that defined a generation that defined a culture, everything you could ever want or desire would be contained within those four quintessential records. Every avid music fan has a special place in their collection for a select number of albums that they consider their all-time favourites. And no two all-time lists would ever be identical because taste is such a subjective, personal, an often intimate thing. 
But this despite the fact that many of the band's hardcore fans are unlikely to rate 17 seconds as their chosen one. Taste is a very personal and intimate thing indeed. But as Robert Smith himself suggests on the excellent play for today, it's not a case of doing what's right. It's just the way I feel that matters. Tell me I'm wrong. I really don't care. Having been seriously impressed when Faith came out in 1981, I worked my way back through the then not-so-extensive, at that point anyway, Cure Back catalogue, and 17 Seconds quickly established itself as the benchmark by which I would judge all future Cure releases. And I think a lot of people would probably attest to doing something very similar. Through the years, I found myself returning to it, and it never lets me down. For me, it captures perfectly the headspace I found myself dwelling in back in those late teenage post-punk years of 1980 through 1983. And although any rational, sane person may consider such a notion pretty unhealthy, it remains a period of my life that I just can't let go. Just another one of those boring soundtracks of my youth. Best days of my life scenarios. Call it a time, place, and you had to be living there, right? Or as Dave Mustaine would say on Metallica's year and a life in the a year and a, a year and a half in the life of Metallica, call me wacky, call me kooky. But this is my life, and this is a reflection of who I am. And how many seriously deranged, post-pubescent, goth boy wannabes could relate to the words contained within the album's finest moments? Come closer and see, see into the trees, find the girl while you can. Come closer and see, see into the dark, just follow your eyes, just follow your eyes. And follow our eyes and our ears, we certainly did. I must state that so many vivid memories come flashing back with Julie and I sort of sitting on our back porch in Charles Street Q when we were first looking to consider becoming a little bit more of a serious goth couple um, more goth for her sake and less punk for mine, even though I was playing lead guitar in Aardvark's Afterbirth at the time and also moonlighting in Arm the Insane and AIDS, another indestructible dirty sound. I mean, the punk squats of that time were so reflective of me wanting to break out of my bourgeoisie, middle-class Christian upbringing and throw all sense of belonging to the wind and say, I'm just here. I'm just in the now. And it really worked for me in so many ways because it allowed me to look at the experimental atmospheric music of the time. 
To give Smith his due, he got the next bit right as well. The girl was never there. And yes, Siri, it was always the same. This is a broken record. This is pubescent, adolescent, sexual discovery, exploration at its best. And it really had its place, particularly within the so-called punk rock, goth rock, peer group that I was mingling within at the time. You're on Magazine Radio, 17 Seconds and The Cure. And we're going to feature a little medley now. We're going to look into a kind of a, a crossover of where the mindset, where the consciousness was for Robert Smith at the time when he released 17 Seconds. So we're going to have a bit of a look at play for today. And we're going to follow that up with a kind of a, a touch on secrets and a little bit of M. I want to talk quite a lot about M. You're on Magazine Radio. We're listening to 17 Seconds. And this is Play For Today.
Pure and M so aptly titled for its sort of dystopian outlook before that Secrets and before that Play for Today you're on Magazine Radio the Vinyl Crusade with your host Mike Buskus and we're getting into the down and dirty nitty gritty of 17 seconds by The Cure From the experimental, atmospheric, and somewhat instrumentals, kind of like the interludes of the record, we look at the final sound through to the classic simplicity and repetition of In Your House, Play For Today, and M. This is a finely crafted series of work and very, very much tuned in to the higher harmonic resonance of what the record is really, really trying to say and why it has so many different colours, moods, temperatures and drives it all with Robert Smith's characteristic vocal style. There is an utter and almost total genius of the band's seminal work very well reflected in the formative nature of this powerful piece of musicology. It is often said that familiarity ultimately leads to contempt. In the case of 17 seconds, the opposite applies in my humble opinion. That familiarity takes me to the sort of comfortable warm zone seldom found amid dark, stark, and otherwise obscure surrounds. Each to their own, I say, but this is a back-of-the-hand album. I know every last chord change, each and every nuance in Smith's burgeoning voice, conscious nor subconscious anticipation of either never wears thin in my book. So there's a sort of a glow that very much comes into focus on my beaming face when I particularly decide to immerse myself in this album. And of course, following this, they came out with the rather brooding, moody, and even darker, somber vibe of faith. And perhaps on a different episode of the Vital Crusade, we may choose to delve a little deeper. The 2005 Deluxe Edition CD release is the one that I have. And it is somewhat a bonus CD which features different versions of the tracks themselves, some live versions, some alternate takes, some home demos of non-album material, rare cult hero stuff from the band's earliest incarnation. But to be honest, none of it could be considered essential listening, regardless of how collectible it may once have been. I was a little disappointed with some of the sound quality on the bonus CD stuff. I really wanted a definitive version of Another Journey by Train, an instrumental B-side of some repute. 
but found the demo on this distorted and muddy. Still, that must be considered only a minor complaint, and it takes nothing away from how I feel about the original album as a whole. To put it in the most simple terms I possibly can, 17 seconds very much becomes a measure of life. On the Cures UK tour opening for Susie and the Banshees, Smith began playing in both bands after the headlining band's guitarist defected. Smith wore the same drab clothing on stage for each set, prompting an enemy scribe to write that The Cure had no image, no style, no backbone, no foundation. How wrong could this idiot be? When it was time to return to Morgan Studios, bassist Michael Dempsey voiced distate for Smith's new atmospheric songs, and Smith replaced him with Simon Gallup. Robert was really good at keeping his ego at the forefront of his creative process. And when he felt that his belief structure or his archetypes and things that he held passionate and close to him felt threatened by other members, it was out the door, sunshine, and uh, don't call, we'll call you. When it was time to return to the studio, Gallup enthralled with the new synthesizers coming out at the time, Smith and Gallup also added a new keyboardist in Matthew Hartley. With the money we got from Three Imaginary Boys, I bought 10 days of studio time, and we only really used eight. So I got my money back for the last two, which I thought was a pretty good deal overall. It was lucky because we spent far more than I thought we would on beer. <laughs> we did all the photos the day we finished recording at about 8 o'clock in the morning. And as I said earlier, it was the more out-of-focus ones that we ended up using. During 17 seconds, we honestly felt that we were creating something no one else had done. And from this point on, I thought that every album was going to be the last Cure album. So I always tried to make it something that would be kind of a milestone. I feel 17 Seconds is one of the few albums that genuinely achieved that, Smith said. With A Forest, I wanted to do something that was really atmospheric. And it really lifted my own depth of field in the way that I saw music through a rather tuned out and somewhat distorted filter. But this definitely marked the starting point of their gloomy path towards cementing themselves as icons in the goth rock movement. Essential and existential Meditations on the passing of time, eerie guitar sounds, Simon Gallup's crisp bass lines coated in hazy synths and piano passages that sound as if they were played by ghosts in a haunted house. 
I love that as far as a an overview or an overall encompassing ideal wrapped up in the enigma that became 17 seconds. Between 1980 and 1982, The Cure switched lineups, switched producers, made friends with pop charts, and steadily toured Europe. They also got drunker, got weirder, got in fistfights with one another, took loads of drugs, walked off tour, and generally danced through some surreal kabuki version of the Libertines' recent press. We're looking for a word, and the word is tumultuous. Which makes it kind of striking that they also, during these same years, released these remarkable albums, while things were very much topsy-turvy. Alice in Wonderland, let's go down the rabbit hole. Who wants to take the blue pill? What's so remarkable about, remarkable about these records is it's a perfect example of the kind of record that's been subdivided out of existence. People will always have an affectionate memory imprint of lying in bed and dreaming about what is and could or should never be. A guitar record that makes no distinction between the pop pulse, rock catharsis and the atmospheric space we now mostly get from computers. This is the time before quintized, quantized, machine-made music. Precision was definitely a thing of the future and Smith had no intention of embracing it. There are so many textures in the tapestry weaved around 17 seconds. You're on Magazine Radio, The Vinyl Crusade with your host Mike Puskas and we're looking into the juxtaposing elements that make up The Cure's 17 seconds. And I think at this point in time, once again, it'll be worthy of our attention and our consideration of detail to look into a couple more of the quintessential tracks from the album. We're going to feature a final sound and then at night and listen to the juxtaposition that exists very much between the two. This is The Cure and The Final Sound.
That was three by The Cure from 17 Seconds. And before that, we had Into the Night. We're at the home straight now. And I think it's time to get into what I consider to be the deeper elements of what this record meant to so many of us that were exploring who we were. What was our identity in this somewhat post-punk era? And where effectively did we find ourselves holding space for what we thought and knew in our hearts that we truly loved? And we knew deep in our hearts that this was okay. This was the right way to go. This was more about the powerful nature of being able to be individual, stand out there with all our hopes and dreams and aspirations ready to be scattered like mindless chatter across the sidewalks and footpaths of our misspent youth. 17 Seconds slowly arrives at the kind of sound The Cure eventually became famous for. One that combines the dire and despair of human experience with a pinch of cheeky playfulness. Even though people associate them with all things dark and bleak, they are at the same time a cheerful band in a wonderfully bizarre and unique way that undoubtedly has got to do with some of the biggest hits they went on to produce and the aesthetics they adapted as a means of sticking a middle finger in the faces of everyone who pigeonholed them as gruff and drab. But if you have the advantage of knowing what will come, you can foresee some of that in their earlier work already. It's not a case of doing what's right it's just the way I feel that matters. Tell me I'm wrong, I don't really care. An excerpt from Play for Today that very much became a gramophone soundtrack of my own life experience. There are no colours on the surface of 17 seconds. The blurry image of the forest from the album cover is in this sense pretty accurate. The record constitutes the first chapter in the loose Nihilist trilogy, which further includes the murky sonic waters of faith in 1981 and existential screams of pornography in 1982. All three of these albums certainly are dismal in the eyes of most on some level. You can't pretend that the lyrics, I drown at night in your house, in your house, or it doesn't matter if we all die 100 years on pornography, come from a happy place. However, listen closely and you can find little sparks of joy sprinkled underneath the veil of misery. Taken out of the context, the goth universe couldn't some parts on play for today or the guitar on secrets be part of a catchy pop tune. I say they totally could, but of course they work best in contrast to the tormented vocals of Robert Smith, forever torn between dreams and nightmares. The music of The Cure on 17 Seconds and Beyond 
allows you to handpick the layer that fits your mood, which might be the gloomy piece of lyrics in one moment and the upbeat bass line in the next. An event which helped to shape the band's sound was that The Cure accompanied Susie and the Banshees on their UK tour promoting the album Join Hands in 79. Robert Smith filled in on the guitar with the Banshees when John McKay dropped out mid-tour, an experience which had a profound influence on his musical style and pointed to him in the new direction he wanted The Cure to take. He made sure he had more creative control over the recording process because he felt the lack of it during the production of their debut, Three Imaginary Boys, which later became, as I stated, Boys Don't Cry. And he was never really satisfied with the result. It didn't matter which way you looked at it or how you heard it or what you tried to draw from it, he was a perfectionist, and trying to satisfy that curiosity is a pretty difficult feat in anyone's language. Smith composed most of the music for 17 seconds at his parents' home using a Hammond organ, a drum machine, and his trademark Woolworth Top 20 guitar. The story goes that he wrote most of the lyrics in one night after having been in a fistfight in an elevator. I can't imagine Smith getting involved in a fistfight anywhere, let alone the elevator, though I can imagine the sort of lads who'd want to punch the shit out of this poor bloke because of his character and the way he represented his somewhat bohemian image. Either way, it's true that a lot of what happens in the songs happens a night to a lone narrator who seems to be awake only to watch the hours slowly pass by. As the title suggests, the pursuit of measuring time is a recurring theme on this album. Even if they are not mentioned explicitly, the ticking clock and time always seem to be of importance, perhaps just to point out their pointlessness. A lyric, sunk deep in the night, I sink in the night. Standing alone underneath the sky, I feel the chill of ice on my face. I watch the hours go by, the hours go by, the hours go by. An excerpt from Night. The opener, a reflection, starts with a short silence. Only at about six seconds you first register the hum of the synthesizers. At the 12 seconds, the piano comes in at normal volume with a repetitive slow-paced tune, evocative of an opening credits theme, before fading back to silence. Suddenly, the drum of Play For Today kicks, one of the faster songs on the album. Robert Smith clearly has a thing for intros and outros. Play For Today is one of these songs, where it takes over a minute for the vocals to come in and they retreat again long before the end. In Your House ticks slowly like the hours that Smith is singing about with a macabre sense of the surreal and the uncomfortable feeling of impending catastrophe hanging in the air. The guitar sounds as if it was smiling, knowingly, and reminds me of a mechanical toy winder, which adds to the horror-like atmosphere. 
Three feels like you've entered a creepy old house and you're starting to hear voices because you can't quite understand what is Smith whispering. I change the time in your house. The hours I take go too slow. The final sound is a 53 second long instrumental intermezzo, which again draws attention to the meaning of time or the lack thereof. The track was supposed to be longer, but the tape ran out during the recording and the tight budget and time schedule didn't allow for another take. The track indeed ends abruptly and bursts into the magnificent intro of a forest without any warning. Smith is taking his strategy of long instrumental openings and endings as far as it goes. Adding a minute of distant buzz and slow guitar strokes before the song begins to unfold in its actual tempo. The intro has suspense that keeps you at the edge of your seat. And as the song goes on, you can almost hear the legs running frantically between the trees. The protagonist's refusal to admit his actions are futile becomes tangible when you reach the outro which keeps going on and on and on and on. A shorter edit of the song became the band's first hit single and it's still a great tune even in that version. But I have to say it doesn't really do it for me when the beat hits from the get-go. I feel robbed precisely of the tension that makes the song so great. Along with timing and atmosphere, suspense is vital to the whole album and lends it cinematographic qualities. 17 seconds is therefore the perfect final track, closing credits as it were. There hasn't been a great era of The Cure in my music listening career where I would listen to nothing else but them and dig out every piece of trivia I could find. These goths from Sussex crept up on me slowly but grew to become all too familiar and all too part of my rather splintered psyche at the time. Compared to other artists from back in the day, whom I adored at a specific point in my life, but rarely dare to reopen that Pandora's box. My love for The Cure is always in the present tense. Tell me I'm wrong, I don't really care. 17 seconds sounds as good as ever, and a forest still gets me again and again and again and again, no matter how many times I've heard it. Aren't we all running through some sort of forest in this incarnation of existence, chasing the next promise or hope we thought we saw shimmering in the distance? Has life become nothing more than a mirage of what we would hope or like it or deem it to be? I think Robert Smith is a poet I think Robert has a prophetic outlook. I think he understands the deeper spiritual value that the darker language of music has and the hypnotic power it wields on an unsuspecting audience. I love 17 seconds 
And 17 seconds is exactly where we're going to leave today's episode of the Vinyl Crusade. It's fitting because there are so many metaphorical reflections very apparent in this album, but none more apparent and or reflective than in 17 seconds. I hope you enjoyed this particular episode of the Vinyl Crusade, The Cure in 17 Seconds. I'm going to do something a little different because as many of you who know me or, or, or at least have got to know me through The Seven Cents and through Activate You and the interviews and the different discussions that I've been having for some time now on radio, I'm in a band, a local Melbourne band, which of course can't do anything at the moment because of this rigid lockdown, called Mile. And Mile is a group that kind of likes to take psychedelia and mix it with some goth and some hard rock and even some pop sensibilities. And on this latest album that Julian Reed and myself have been working on for close to a year now, Feedback Loop, which will be ready for release probably mid-September, and we're waiting deliberately for a powerful planetary transit to do that. I'm going to close the show with an original song we call Ice Queen. And if you were to listen to all of 17 seconds from go to woe, from start to finish, and then play this track in quick succession straight after it, I think you'll find that it suits the mood perfectly. Thanks for tuning in. I look forward to sharing another instalment of the show next week. I think we might stay in this gothic theme and explore an incredibly unique, esoteric and ethereal female artist and I think many of you know already who that might be. I'm Mike Puskas, thanks for tuning in and I look forward to connecting with you all again next week. Much love to all and namaste.